And this is probably the message, the beginning of the passage of which I have been fearful of teaching. Um, and um, oh, I also forgot to mention that there is nursery. Jessica and Gabrielle are willing to do nursery, so if you'd like to have a nursery, um, they're willing to go over and do that. But unless somebody wants it, they're not going to go over there. Okay, so just if you need them, let them know, and they're willing to do that. But in Revelation 10, as we come into Revelation 10, there are um, three unknowns that we are going to run into. Three um, debates as people have gone through this passage and they debate these things. First of all, there's the mighty angel. There is the, um, the completion of the mystery. And then thirdly, there is the, the book. Um, of The book that's there, the bittersweet book that's there as well. And so we're going to be looking at each of these. And so it is a potentially a long message. There is a lot of information. Um, and so I trust that you remember a little bit of context where we're at in the things that, that shall be. And as we're coming through, we are coming out of the sixth trumpet and going into the seventh trumpet. And so as we come into Revelation 10, then we want to look at this, this vision that Paul had of this mighty angel that is coming down in the clouds and whose feet are on the sea and the land and in his hand is a book and, uh, and to whom is declared as he declares that the, the mystery will be complete. And so Steve has already read through it, and we want to look at then these three different facets of it. And first we want to look at the mighty angel. And so, again, if you have the sermon note sheets, you can follow along here with me. I've got on your sermon note sheets as well the um, context of the, the things that shall be, the outline that's there and where we are, and the mighty angel was way down there as little a under 7, which is under the Roman numeral 7, okay? And so you can kind of follow all, all that through as we go. Um... But this mighty angel, as we look at this mighty angel, the first thing we want to look at is his description. How is the mighty angel described? And so first of all, we see his entrance. His entrance, he comes in the what? In the clouds. He's coming down from heaven, and he's clothed with a cloud. Secondly, we see his presence. And in his presence, we're told that he's, his head was encircled with a rainbow. And then secondly, his face was like the sun. And thirdly, his feet... Not his legs, but his feet, literally in the Greek. His feet were like pillars of fire. Okay, we're going to talk about identity in just a little bit. This is just the observations of descriptions. And so thirdly, we're talking about his posture. And as he stands there, he is holding a book. And he is standing with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. And finally, his voice, we're told, is like the voice of a lion's roar. And it's also, when he, when he cried out with that lion's roar, that his voice was accompanied with seven thunders. And when the seven, the seven thunders uttered their, 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 their voice and w- uttered what they were going to express, John was about to write it down. And as he was about to write down what the seven thunders uttered, he was told, don't write it down. So people debate. Again, that's really the fourth mystery that's of this whole thing, and that is what did the seven thunders utter. But note that that's not one of the things we're going to talk about. Because... Clearly what? I don't know. So You're going to want, excuse me, wonder at the end of the message whether I know anything else to eat too. But, um, but that one, clearly I can tell you, I haven't got a clue. God said what? Seal it. It's sealed. Okay? So there, I mean, it's amazing how many guys, 
are out there, and gals, I guess, who have stated that they understand, they know what the seven thunders uttered. And anyways, but God said seal it. So, to my knowledge, it's still sealed. I can take a guess of what, it might have, what they might have said. I read between the lines here. But anyways, but I don't know. Alright, so, that's the description. What a <clears throat> incredible picture. Um, Pat Marvanko-Smith has sought to paint it, to draw it. Um, you know, I only have one discrepancy with the whole thing. And that is the, the, the wings that are there. But I'm sure the wings that are there is, is to make us think what? Angel. Angel, right. But note that in the description, we're not told what? There were wings. The only time we're told about angels having wings is, um, for example, is like in Isaiah chapter 6. And what are we told about their wings in Isaiah 6? How many wings? Six, that's right. Two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and two to fly. So anyway, so if this was more accurate um, as an angel, as a cherubim, whatever, um, then he should have six of them coming out. Anyways, and covering his face and covering his feet and flying with it. So whatever. So, but that's, that's here and there, but it's still a phenomenal picture. It kind of gives you an idea of what John must have been kind of seeing almost, you know, as, as he saw that. But the next thing we want to do is we want to look at the identification. I mean, this is really the, the big thing that we all want to know, right? Okay, great, we can read that. Who is it? Who is the mighty angel? Well, there are two main interpretations. First of all, it's an angel of God. More specifically, an archangel of God. Even more specifically, probably Michael, the archangel. Michael is the, um, the archangel... Um, who is over Israel, the guardian angel of Israel. And so we want to look at some supporting evidence that it's an archangel. It is, it is Michael the archangel. And so we see in Daniel chapter 10 um, that we read Daniel's having this vision and we're told that now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the river Tigris, I lifted my eyes and I looked and behold a certain man clothed in linen. Okay, and so this individual that he sees looks like what? Looks like a man, clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning. What would that be like? Very brilliant. Very, very brilliant. His eyes were like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sounds of his words were like the voice of a multitude. Sounds pretty similar to what we read in, in Revelation chapter 10, yes? Okay, with the, uh, the, the, the thunderous voices and stuff like that. In Daniel chapter 9, or 9, sorry, Daniel chapter 12, we read about Michael himself, okay, in verses 1 to 4, and it says that at that time, Michael, okay, shall stand up, now understand we're talking about that time is the end times, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince, okay, the, the archangel, if you would, who stands watch over the sons of your people, that's Israel, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame, and some to everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, until the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And so people then look at this one, and they see the, the, um, the angel, potentially angel, <clears throat> back there in chapter 10 that we read about. And they see his description, and they say, wow, look, this is what an archangel looks like. And now here we have Michael, who is an archangel, 
And we're told that at the end times, that Michael's going to stand up. Michael's presence is going to be there, because Michael is the, the, the great prince, the archangel, the, the guardian angel of Israel, um, the great defender of Israel. He's going to stand up, and um, he's, going to, and he's going to come. And when we look at Revelation chapter 10, we know that it stands on the forefront of Revelation chapter 11. Makes sense, right? And in Revelation chapter 11 is the beginning of the final seven years of Daniel's vision. Okay? You've got three and a half years where the witness is going to be in the earth, and then you've got the three and a half years where the beast is going to reign on the earth. Okay? That's seven years. You know, there are a lot of people who, in the pre-tribulational um, rapture view, think that the three and a half years, the, the, the tribulation period actually begins back in chapter 6. Um, I don't see it. I mean, it's very clear that three and a half years begins in chapter 11, and then the final three and a half years at the end of chapter 11. So, anyways, I don't see what they see in all that. I, three and a half plus three and a half is seven, and I can't figure out where another three and a half years would start. So, but if that's the case then, if it does start in chapter 11, like I understand it, okay, as I read it, then it would make sense, according to this view, for this to be Michael in chapter 10 coming, because now he's standing right on the beginning, on the eve, of God dealing with Israel for that final week. Does that make sense? And in, in, in his hand, he holds a book, right? Potentially, the book of Daniel, at least the segment that was sealed until the time of the end. And if you read further into chapter 12, the part that's being sealed there is the understanding of when will these things occur. And he's not allowed to know that. So, potentially, that is that book. Now, I'm not saying yes or no to what I think about all that at this moment. I'm just presenting options here. Okay? So that's the support for, um, for this being Michael. But there are ramifications of holding that that is Michael the Archangel. What, what, what effect does it have? What, what, what cause is there that, that comes from that, that, that being Michael? Well, in Revelation 14, we read about um, a point where it looks like it could be Jesus coming in the clouds, okay? And so if it was Michael in Revelation 10, then, then Jesus' return couldn't come until Revelation 14. Does that make sense? That's the next time that we see someone coming in the clouds. Okay? And what we read then, in chapter 14 in Revelation, it says, Then I looked and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like, not the Son of Man, but like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had a power of fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now, I refer to this as a ramification as a consequence 
potentially a negative consequence of chapter 10 being Michael the Archangel. Why would I consider this to be a negative? Well, because my initial thrust reading of this is that this is the pouring of God's wrath. This is judgment. When the one who is like, and I'll talk about that in a moment, the Son of Man coming in the cloud, comes, and the reaping is happening, they're being thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. Okay? Now, there are two, though, upon secondary reading here. Okay? Verse 17 is key in this. And I really focused on verse 17 about 11.30 last night, and I was, oh, God, what are you doing to me here? You know, and so I started wrestling again for another who knows how long, and woke up early this morning to wrestle some more. Um, anyways, there are two angels. And so there is the, the first who's coming like the Son of Man in the clouds. He reaps. And then the second angel puts in the sharp sickle, and he reaps. And the question you have to come up with is, who's being thrown into the wine press? Okay? So there is the potential that the first reaping is the rapture. Mm. So if you would hold to this view that in Revelation chapter 10, that this mighty angel is Michael, and that this coming is Jesus, then you would be what is called a mid-trib rapturist. Because this is in the middle of the tribulation. The final seven years of Daniel. Okay? We'll get there in the weeks to come. Okay? So this is kind of looking ahead, just kind of information overload. Okay? But if you see this as Jesus, then you believe that he's going to come in the middle of the tribulation. Or what's now referred to by Mark Rosenthal as the pre-trib or pre-wrath rapture of the church. Okay? But that's just a, a misnomer because the pre-wrath position here has to be in the middle of tribulation. Okay. So, um, problems with that. First of all, for me, we're told that he's one like the Son of Man. We're not told it is the Son of Man coming in clouds. He's like the Son of Man coming in clouds. Now, that's not a, a major, that's, you can get over that one, but it is a factor that's there. We just looked a couple weeks ago when we went into chapter 9 about the locusts that were coming. Remember how we talked about the locusts? And they had a face or body like horses. They had a face like a man. They had hair like a woman's hair. You get it? In other words, they didn't have those things. It was just how Paul or John was trying to describe it. Okay? So, not necessarily is this the son of man. He's saying it's one like the son of man. And the, the term Son of Man occurs 191 times throughout the scriptures. 92 of those times, it, it is referring to Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, yes? He talks to Ezekiel, and it's over and over and over again. And those, like, like it's an average of two or three times a chapter, um, God refers to Ezekiel as the Son of Man. Okay? Another 80 times, it is used in the four Gospels, referring to Jesus Christ. But only twice in the New Testament, other than in the Gospels, is it ever used. That's by Stephen, as he looks up and sees, I, I see, like the Son of Man standing beside the throne of God. And then, as well, in the book of Hebrews, but that's not necessarily referring to Jesus. And so, the only other time is we have two places in the book of Revelation. But the rest of those times are referring to people in the Old Testament. Okay? So, the only time 
this is really referred to as Jesus being the Son of Man is in the Gospels and potentially here in Revelation. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's just it's information. I'm, I'm just giving you information. You've got to kind of figure this one out. Okay, now so that so that I, I have to factor this in as I'm trying to interpret and say, okay, well, is this Jesus? Another great factor for me here that I have to consider is that an angel comes and tells the one on the, the cloud what to do. Do you note it? And so, verse 15, another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust your sickle in. And so, if it was Jesus on the cloud, I think Jesus is God, does that make sense? Who is the creator of the angel. Get my kind of logical progression here. And you've got a created being, the angel, coming out of the temple, telling God what to do. So, this doesn't make sense to me. So, so I look at it, and, and I'm perplexed. I'm straight up, I'm perplexed as I come into this, and I, and I see this, okay? But evidence to me makes me start to just kind of wonder here. And I'm not willing, right off the bat, to say, this is the rapture. This is clearly Jesus. If we were told that the Son of Man came in the clouds, and he declared the time to reap had come, then I would be standing here unequivocally saying to you, I've changed my position. I'm now a, a mid-trib rapturist. Does that make sense? That would be enough evidence for me at this moment to say that. It's, it's not right now. There is, um, as well, Daniel chapter 7. He says that, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now, wow, that sounds like this again, doesn't it? I mean, because now all of a sudden the kingdoms are being given to him, and he's coming in the clouds. This is another one of the evidences here. But it's a ramification. Okay? I put this under ramification. It's not a support. You say, well, that looks like support. Well, this is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. But we believe that we should interpret things in what? In context, right? So let's look at context. Here in, in this context, beginning in verse 12, we read, As for the rest of the beasts, okay, remember we're talking about the four beasts now. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, <clears throat> yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night, this is what we just read, visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And then so on and so forth. And down in verse 24, he begins to get an, a, an understanding about what the vision was about. And it says, the ten horns, or ten kings, who shall rise from the kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times of law. Who is that? It's Antichrist. Okay? Who's going to set himself up in the temple. Okay? That happens during the second half of the tribulation period. Okay? Is everybody tracking with that one? Okay? So, that all happens. Then the saints will be given in his hand. Verse 26. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So when is this happening? At the end of the seven years. Before the millennium. And that leads me to think that if you haven't got one of the color copies of the, the overview charts in the back, you, you probably want to have one. 
Um, it's, it's really important just to kind of keep picturing where things are in that. So if you don't have one of those, they're on the back table. I'm not, it doesn't bother me if you get up now and go get one if you need one, okay? So, again, what seems to be support really isn't support from my perspective because now this turns around and says that it's what? Post-trip, you know? So it doesn't fit at all with Revelation chapter 14. Some of you are probably going, whoa. So, and understand, just accept a lot of this as what? Information. Data points, okay? And you go home and hopefully chew it and maul it and, and think about it and pray about it, okay? Now, there is, though, another option that's here, okay? And that is that potentially this mighty angel is Jesus. But to say that it's Jesus, you've got to ask yourself a question right off the bat. Wait, it says it's a what? A mighty angel. And so has Jesus ever been referred to as an angel? Yes. How many say yes? Okay, some say yes. How many say no? He's never been referred to as an angel. Ah, oh, you're non-committal. Ah, look at you. I'm not going on until you take a vote. No, anyways, all right. The answer is yes. He has been referred to as an angel. The angel of Yahweh. Throughout the entire Old Testament. Now, we're going to go a little bit further on this one. But he has been referred to as. Now, understand... What does the term angel mean? Messenger. Messenger. He's a messenger. Okay? So we, again, we take the, the translation, the interpretation that the translator put there, and we understand it as this thing with what? Wings. Okay? But literally what it says is that a, that a strong messenger, a mighty messenger came in the clouds. Hmm. That kind of changes things a little bit, doesn't it? So, I'm not going to go into all the passages about the angel of Yahweh, but there's numerous passages there about the angel of Yahweh, and we know that the angel of Yahweh is who? It's Jesus. It's God, but it's Jesus Christ, okay? And those who saw him, even though he's called an angel of Yahweh, refer to him as God. Does that make sense? So, the messenger of Yahweh is the, is the human personification of God. And so, in a sense, when Jesus was on the earth, dwelling on the earth, he was the messenger of Yahweh. He was the Shekinah Chabod. He was the Shekinah glory of God on the earth. He was the indwelling presence of God on the earth. So, um, for him to come, this isn't a major deal for me. Also, we can consider the other descriptive accounts of Christ that's, that, that is here. And so, turn back to Revelation chapter 1. And let's look to see how Jesus is described in Revelation 1. Okay, let's look at verse, um, verse 7. Let's start there. It says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him in all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so am on. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, who is on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard it behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see right in the book. Now, who is talking then in verse 11 so far? I'm the Alpha Omega. The Lord, right? How do you know that? He's the Alpha and Omega. How do you know that? 
That's exactly right. Good. Okay, so that's why I read that, because of context. We understand in verse 11 who's talking. So I'm the Alpha Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden candlestands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded with the chest with a golden band. And his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Does this sound a little bit like Daniel chapter 10 to you? What we just read a little bit earlier? Who is this talking about? Jesus. Hmm. Okay. His head and his hair were white like wool, and white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Verse 15. His feet were like what? Fine brass. As is refined in a furnace, and his voice is a sound of many waters. Now, now all of a sudden, some of that support for Michael starts to go, wait a second, this is referring clearly to Jesus. There's no doubt it's referring to Jesus. Jehovah Witnesses would like you to think that this was who? Was an angel. They want to say it's an angel, right? And that Jesus is what? An angel, okay? But it's really interesting, and when we talk about this the stuff of an angel, look back at verse 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Well, who was the one then speaking these things to John? Who was? Jesus Christ, because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That he gave to Jesus Christ, who gave to John. Okay, and so... Anyways, again, let's talk about is Jesus ever referred to as an angel? Potentially right here in verse 1, at the very beginning, Jesus is referred to as a messenger. So, so these other descriptive accounts of Christ, very clearly Jesus is referred to as this individual. We're told in the book of Thessalonians that he's going to be coming how? In the clouds. He's going to be coming with a loud shout. Okay? And so these are things that very much mirror, and I challenge you to look up these other verses that are on your sermon note sheet, very much mirror what's going on in chapter 10. But the third thing is, that I want to look at in this identification process, is the other evidence of this mighty angel himself. Now, this is a great, this is a good picture of this mighty angel. And as we considered the description of this mighty angel, as we, as we looked at the, the mighty angel, that we saw his presence. And the first thing we saw about his presence was that he was encircled with what? A rainbow. What's the rainbow? It's a sign of the covenant. Okay? What sign of the covenant? What covenant? The covenant that God made with the entire earth. It wasn't just with Noah. We refer to it as the Noahic covenant because God made it to Noah, but it was really with the entire earth. God said, I will never again flood the earth. The rainbow, okay, as it was around the throne of God, do you remember how there was the throne was encircled with a rainbow, an emerald rainbow? Okay? It is a picture of God's covenant with the earth. It's a picture of his his authority, if you would, of who he is. This angel, mighty angel, coming down is encircled with the, the rainbow. To me, that's, that's a, um, there's, a, there's a picture that's there. Okay? Secondly, we're told that his feet are planted on the sea and on the land. That is, symbolically, a picture of ownership. He owns everything. He can stand on it. It's his. Okay? If you stand on the property... It's yours. And so, 
Again, I see this as, as ownership as well. Finally, we're told in chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 11, you can look at this, but I have it up here. And it said, And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I, who's I? The angel. I will give my witnesses, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, we can debate next week, potentially, who the two witnesses are. Whether they're Moses and Elijah, whether they're Moses and, uh, and Enoch, um, you know, whatever. But the point is, would an angel, a true created being, dare take ownership over two of the prophets of God? And the answer to that is no. So, to me, when I, and this, this one here, just, it just, it's a clincher for me. Who's talking? It has to be God. It has to be Jesus. The description of that mighty angel in Revelation 10, to me, meets the description of Jesus Christ. Is there an outside shot in my mind that it could be Michael? Yes. But it's a very outside shot. Does that make sense? There, there is too much more weight for me as we go through this passage, we've got more to go. That this is Jesus than it is Michael. Okay? And so, um, so is that the identification of the, of the mighty angel? Secondly, we want to get into then the mystery of God. Because this mighty angel, who I believe is Jesus, declares, we're, we're told, beginning of verse 5, chapter 10, it says, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the seven days of the sound, in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. Now, as we look at this mystery of God, then, there are three segments we want to look at. First of all, it's the surety of the declaration. This mighty angel, whom I believe is Jesus, declares that, and he swears by him who lives forever and ever, right? And the question you have to ask yourself is, again, would Jesus do that? Would Jesus swear by him who lives forever and ever? And the answer is, yes. All right, Daniel, you're bold. I like it. So, yes. How? Do you have any proof? Good. Yes, that's exactly right. Number two is God swore by himself. On the first one, throughout the Old Testament, um, we're always told that Yahweh swore by his own, his own holiness. There is nothing greater for him to swear by. So he has to swear by because, and he doesn't, he says, let your yes be yes and your no by, be no. But the reality is, like Paul said, I speak according to the flesh because of, your, your, of who you are. And so sometimes God uses our baseness. And so, so I think this mighty angel, encrypted, if you would, Jesus Christ, coming, swears by himself, swears by him who lives forever, who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in it, that this is going to happen. It's the surety of the declaration. It's going to happen. Secondly, the timing of the perfection. We're told that it's when the seventh angel was about to sound, and that time or delay 
there would be no longer delay, or time should be no longer. If you've got a King James that says time, there's no longer time, or time is no longer. If you've got a New King James, it says there should be no longer de- delay. Sure. Is there any place in the Bible where, because I thought that you were supposed, you weren't supposed to swear, not because it's wrong, but because you can't control what you swear by, and so God can control His holiness. It's okay for God to swear because He can control whatever He's swearing about. But is there ever a place where an angel swears by God? Um, I don't know. Off the top of my head, I mean, just standing here, I don't know. We'll have to look at that. Does an angel swear by God? That's a good question. I'm trying to... Uh, I'm, I'm processing. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm the book of Jude, we're told the Lord said, to, or when they're battling over the body of Moses, the Lord rebuke you. And so... You didn't swear by him, No, I know. That's what I'm, I said. My, my brain's processing. Um, I, I can't think of an angel swearing by God. That's a good point, Daniel. I'll have to look it up. And so my fourth point is that no angel... No, anyways, so... Um, put it as a side note. Maybe a future scribe will write it down as scripture. Anyways, um, good. It's a good point, though. Remind me at some point. I don't want to look at that. I'll forget by the end of the message. Um, but here, we're told time's no longer. And again, there's a debate thing going on here because time's no longer, right? Wait, time's no longer. So this is the end time. So this means that really... These things are happening simultaneous, not sequentially. No, the word is chronos. Chronos, again, is referring to um, passage of time, but it also can refer to um, periods, epochs of time. Okay? And so, I see this as not a delay, but that this period should be no longer. This epoch, this era, should be completed. Do you get it? Okay? Just kind of track with that, okay? It kind of makes sense as we go through it. So this chronos is no longer, okay? It's, it's done, okay? Well, what is it? Well, let's get into the identity of the mystery itself, okay? What is the mystery? Well, there are a lot of passages um, in the New Testament referring to the mystery. And so here we have Romans 11, verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of the mystery, this mystery. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. In other words, if you ignore the mystery that's revealed, and you come up with your own thoughts, you're wise in your own eyes. Is that what he says? He says, so if, if here's what he is. He's going to describe what the mystery is. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay? So if this passage was the only passage in the New Testament referring to the mystery... It'd be pretty clear. What was the mystery? The church. The church, in a sense. The, the whole kingdom concept where that God was going to blind the eyes of Israel so Gentiles could come in and, and there would be one new man. One, one man complete, right? Well, fortunately, it's not the only place that the mystery is referred to here. Chapter 16. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. Okay? So, we're told about this mystery. Again, what about this mystery? This mystery has been kept secret how long? Since the world began. How is it being revealed? 
through prophetic scripture. Okay? Now, keep that in your mind, okay? And keep going on. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning of verse 7. Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. So what was the purpose of the revealing of this mystery? So that he could do what? He could bring everything all together in Christ, okay? So he has gathered together in Christ. And now in Ephesians 3, Paul just writes a bit more than he ever does on what this mystery is. And so he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages, as he said earlier, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. We'll stop for a moment. Look back at chapter 10, verse 7. It says, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Now many people, in their interpretation, want to look at that, and they say, that's Old Testament prophets. You know, he's talking about Daniel, he's talking about all these other guys. Paul says what? The apostles and prophets. In other words, that he is referring to himself as one of the prophets. That the apostles were the ones who received what? The revelation. Okay? Remember, prophets were ones who received revelation. So, Paul, though we don't refer to Paul, Peter, John, James, Jude, um, and others that I may be missing here, okay? Mark, Luke, though we don't refer to them as prophets, the reality is because they are writers of Scripture, what are they? They're prophets. Who God used to foretell His Word to us. Does that make sense? But Paul understands that, and he states that in verse 5. He says, which now has been revealed by his spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And what is that mystery? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power to me, whom less than the least of all saints this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus. Colossians 1, 24-27. I want a couple more verses here. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship, the, the dispensation, from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Finally, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 57. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, putting all those verses together, what's the mystery? It's Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ was going to come to the earth, he was going to pay the penalty of everybody's sins, that he was going to open up the way of salvation to God, to enter into his presence, not just to the Jews alone through the law, but that it was going to be opened up into the Gentiles, and that there was going to be one way, Jesus Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, there was going to be one way to the Father, and that everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, would come by that one way to the Father, to receive redemption, to receive the cleansing, and that one day Jesus Christ would raise from the dead and he would send him to heaven, and one day Jesus Christ would do what? Take us home to be with him. Because part of that mystery was not only the opening up of the gospel to the church, but also victory over death itself. It's the whole power of the gospel. The whole kingdom of God concept is wrapped up into this thing. And so as I think very clearly, this is the mystery. And so we're told the mystery is going to be complete at this point. We're also told, and I don't have it all up here, but we talked about this in previous messages, that it was going to be until the fullness of the Gentiles came in. The age of the Gentiles is referred to numerous times in the Old Testament. So what is the completion, what is the finishing, what is the finale, if you would, of the mystery of God? It would be the end of the church age where God is about to once again deal with the nation of Israel during the final week of Daniel's vision. God's now done with the church, if you would. Does that make sense? He's now done with that mystery age. And he's ready to work through Israel one more time. Now, the third thing we want to look at is the bittersweet book. What is this bittersweet book that we see? Well, first of all, the identity of the book. It could be the scroll with seven seals. A lot of people would like to say that that's what it is. That it's, since Jesus, if this is Jesus, took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that this is the book, this is a scroll that he has, and so it's a scroll with the seven seals. He gives it to John, John eats it, sweet to the mouth, bitter to the stomach. I don't think so. I think that that scroll that he opened up was a title deed to the earth. That's not what's being referred to here. What, again, is being happening here is you've got, in my mind, in my interpretation, okay, this is just straight. I mean, clearly, you know, you're not, it's not that you're not a believer if you don't believe like I believe on this one. You're close. Anyway, no. Anyways. Um, and, and so, but I think it's important as we look at Revelation chapter 1, blessed are those who read and, 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 and those who hear this prophecy, okay? I think there's a reason God gave it to us. And we need to be diligent to search the scriptures to understand what it says. And so, I am impassioned as we come through this stuff because the word of God is all important. Even these prophetic portions that we can debate over, okay? But in my, in my understanding then, if this is Jesus Christ coming, if Jesus Christ is declaring the catching up of the church at this moment, which I think it is, Okay? I think this is the harpazo, the rapture of the church. I think it's happening right here. I think the church is being caught up. Maybe that's what the seven thunders are uttering. 
I don't know what they under. Remember I told you before, you can read between the lines, I have my impression, my, my thoughts. Maybe it has something to do with that. And God just doesn't want us to know. Because honestly, if we thought, if we thought Revelation chapter 10, yes, that's when the rapture's coming, Revelation 10. Or you say, no, I really thought Revelation 14, I'm going to stick to that one. So you think Revelation 14, that's okay. Whatever you think. If you thought you knew the day or the hour, the timing of it, how would you live? Or how would most people live? I don't have to worry about how I live, right? Do whatever I want to do because he's not coming till then. I've got 20 years still to, to, to party. As long as you know you're going to live. And I love the, the bumper sticker we saw the other day. Those who plan on seeking God on the, at the 11th hour usually die at 1030. Anyways. So, if you think that I've got time, you don't have time. You know, we were at a, a wedding yesterday and um, a woman had a, a, a stroke at it. Um, and fortunately, I don't think the bride and groom knew. It kind of happened toward the end, and they pulled out, and the ambulance pulled in. It was really, God's timing was incredible. But you don't know. I mean, I'm sure the person didn't go to the wedding yesterday thinking, I'm going to, well, you know, it's a good time to, to, to have a stroke and die. You know, I don't know if they died. But, I mean, honestly, how many of you got it on your Palm Pilot? Devin, I mean, I know you're really tech, techno here. Do you have the date of your death down written in He's got a plan, right? So, I mean, so you can work around it, right? I mean... <laughs> We don't do that. I mean, I mean, how many of you got a plan? You know, you don't have a plan. You've got plans for tomorrow, and that's what the Bible says. Don't make, you know, you can't say I'm going to do this because you haven't got a clue. You know, I have no idea. I mean, I can tell you that, you know, here's what I plan to do over the next couple of weeks, but I don't know if I'm going to do it. You know, I made a comment when I was up in Canada that this is potentially my last year of being in Canada. You know, it was kind of a one of those uh, memorable moments, you know, you're sitting there, you're kind of, Man, you know, it's the last time I'm going to be sitting at these cascades. And I mentioned it to Richard Yandel, who's the guy that years ago got me to go up there and made me the director of this thing and da-da-da-da-da. And I mentioned it to him, and, he said, and, and he's one of the directors of the camp up there, and he says, he's a brother, none of us know whether this is the last year that we're going to be here. And I went, you're right. You're exactly right. I mean, it's just change your whole perspective here. I, I, I could die in a way. I may, I may not even get back in the van going back to Georgia. I mean, you know, it's maybe the last sight I ever see. So, anyways. Um, so, right. So, we don't know that. So, this scroll with the seals, I don't think so, because I think that that was a book of ownership to the earth. I don't think that was it at all. So, what's our other options? Well, the other option is, that it is, as we talked about with the Michael the Archangel, that it is the little scroll of Daniel. Ultimately, where did Daniel get his visions? Were they from Michael? No. Where are they from? From Jesus Christ. From God. That's exactly right. And so I do think that potentially this is that little book that was sealed and that we don't know much about. Except for we do have a lot of Daniel open to us. The timing of it is sealed. But we've already gone earlier this year a couple messages through the book of Daniel. And we talked about what Antichrist is going to be like coming through. Do you understand that? And so understand, to John, seeing this book, and understanding that God was going to deal once more with Israel. Who was John? He was an Israelite. He was a Jew. The Jews yearned for this day. For God to come once more and to, to deal with Israel. For Israel to become the powerful nation. Hosea chapter 6 says, After two days I will revive my people and on the third day I will restore her to power. 
A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. They yearned for the prophecy to be fulfilled, that one day God would once more revive Israel and make her the powerhouse. That she would be the ruling nation once more, like in the days of David and the days of Solomon. And what John sees in this book is that those days are about to happen. And so when you saw that, when you first tasted it, what would it taste like to you? It'd be great. Sweet. Sweet as a honeycomb. Beautiful. But then as you opened the book, if you, as you read it and as you ate it further, and you understood what that final week in the price that Israel was going to pay on their way of cleansing to that day, it would become what? Very bitter. Because there was going to be a time coming upon the earth of great wrath and of great bitterness and great turmoil that had never been seen on the earth. You remember when we looked at the earlier seals being opened up and the, and the people of the world were saying, oh, the, the wrath of the Lamb has come upon us. I said, wait a second, be careful. That's the people of the world saying that. It's not God saying that. It's not his angels saying that. It's not Jesus Christ saying that. It's not his saints saying that. It's the people of the world. And what do the people of the world know? Nothing. And you know what? We said at that time, they haven't seen anything yet. And as we started to go through the trumpets, you understood. I mean, it was going to get worse and worse and worse. We haven't even gotten to the bulls of God's wrath. And so this book, opening up Daniel's final timing, the final week to, to Israel, was going to be a great, great beautiful, sweet, lovely moment. But getting to it was going to be very bitter. And so the effect of the book is that it would be sweet to the taste, but it would be bitter in the end, have a bitter aftertaste. So, I ask you, have you joined in the joy of the mystery? God held Jesus Christ in the church as a mystery. It's a whodunit. Through the ages. Now, as we go through the whodunit, as we go through the, and you look through the Old Covenant, you see what? Pieces of it. Glimpses of it. It's there. We understood Isaiah 53, hindsight being 2020. We understand that the suffering servant is Jesus Christ. And we understand that Psalm 22 talks about how his clothes would be rent and it would be auctioned off and how his hands would be uh, pierced. We understand from the book of Zechariah that they would look upon him whom they have pierced. There were, there were um, evidences all throughout the Old Testament, but it was more like a whodunit. It was a, more, a mystery novel. Simeon and Anna were waiting for the, the Redeemer to come. There were some who understood, who had knowledge of the mystery. But as a whole, it was left as a mystery until Jesus Christ came on the scenes. Until John the baptizer came and began to declare that one is coming after me whom I am not worthy to loosen the sandals. So the mystery has been revealed. It's not a mystery any longer. It's wide open. And so my question is, have you joined in the joy of it? 
there's a lot of joy of accepting the fact of the mystery and that Jesus Christ is the completion of it. Have you given your heart to him? Or are you still saying, I don't know, it's too shrouded to me. I don't understand. It's not shrouded. It's wide open. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Behold, now is today, the day of salvation. If you're here today, and you have not been a part of that, I beg you to become a part of it. Have you accepted the forgiveness that Christ died to purchase for you? Are you ready for Christ's return? Ready or not? He's coming. And you know what? We can sit here and debate whether he came, he's coming in Revelation chapter 4, whether he's coming in Revelation chapter 10, whether he's coming in Revelation chapter 14, or whether he's coming in Revelation chapter 20. But you know what? You may not be here on that day. And I may not be here on that day. But there is behold a coming a day when my rapture, if you would, is going to happen. Now, maybe me going down with the undertaker before I get to the uptaker, right? But the fact is, the day is coming when I am going to meet the Lord. And again, if you haven't joined in the joy of the celebration and of the mystery, if you've never received the forgiveness that he's offering and accepted the salvation that he wants you to have, if you've never entered into the covenants and the relationship that he desires for you to have, then the day that you meet him, whether in the clouds, which you wouldn't be there for that, will not be a day of great joy. It'll be a day of great sorrow. But if you know him, if you have joined in that joy, then that day is a great joy, and you should be yearning for it. I look forward to that day. We're told by John, in 1 John chapter 3, that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, before that passage I shared, he says, this mortal shall put on immortality, this corruptible shall put on incorruption. I yearn for the day that this body of sin is done away with. That the, the thoughts of my brain will undergo this great cosmic, spiritual, God-centered cleansing, and I'll be in His presence. And I won't struggle with my flesh and the effects of my flesh, and the effects of the world, and the effects of Satan anymore. We're getting ready to, to celebrate communion. To come together and to declare to one another and to God what He's done for us. Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed, took the bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he told them, take, eat. For the bread is the commemoration. It is the remembrance. It is the symbol of my body, which I am giving for you. And then after they had supped, after they had supper, he took the cup. And when he had blessed it, he said to them, take it and drink from it, all of you. Because this cup is representative of the new covenant that's in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. But as many as you know, and I've shared many times, that in that celebration, Jesus celebrated the Passover. 
And in that Passover celebration, there were four cups of blessings. There were two cups of blessings that occurred before dinner, two cups of blessings that occurred after dinner. And so since we're told that after they had supped, he took the cup, we know that it is the third cup. And in the Hebrew tradition, and in the celebration of Passover, Pesach, that is the cup of redemption. Isn't that neat? And Jesus takes that cup of redemption and says, this is me. I am your Redeemer. But he says then, I will no longer drink of the fruit of this cup until I drink it with you in paradise. Saying, I'm not going to participate in the fourth cup of blessing today. Because this cup of blessing is still waiting to happen. And that fourth cup of blessing says, I will be your God. And you shall be my people. And that is Revelation chapter 19. The marriage supper of the Lamb. When he gathers his bride to himself. And we sit around the table. And he takes that toast, that cup. And he holds it up and says, it is finished. I will be your God. And you shall be my people. We're going to take a moment to pray. And I do pray that you would prepare yourself for the, the communion for the participation in the fellowship of it. If you're not his, I pray that today would be the day when you fully appreciate what communion is all about. If you're in sin, if you've been wandering astray, today is the day of repentance to you. And I pray that in your hearts that you will lift it up before the Lord and cleanse your heart, and say, I want to be like you. Thank you for what you've done for me. Forgive me for trashing your gift. And that you would make yourself right before God. Let's take some time to pray, and then we'll, we'll sing the, uh, the next hymn when we, after I pray.